0: Welcome to another episode of OnSite. This is going to be a good one. My guest today is someone I've known about for decades. He's a legend. If you're in the business, you know all about him. But he's one of those kind of unsung hero developer, architects. In his career, he has converted and restored over 150 projects. Most people in the course of their career do a couple Joseph Pell Lombardi has done more than 150, and he knows all about zoning, architecture, historic buildings, and I'm really excited to talk to him today to get some insight into how he thinks a little bit about conversion projects, how he selects the buildings, a little bit about zoning, and uh, what he sees for the future of this incredible city of ours. Are we running out of buildings to convert? Uh, He thinks not. So. I hope you enjoy this. I'm really excited. Uh, My guest today is Joseph Pell Lombardi.
1: Wonderful buildings, just the very best of interesting buildings. It was clear that their better use was to be a residential use. And so I started in that area and specialized in it for the last 50 years and have converted over 150 buildings in Manhattan. From commercial
0: to residential use. Yeah. Well, uh, you've converted over 150 buildings from commercial to residential use in your career. Yes. That's yes. a staggering, staggering number. <laughs> I don't even know how to comprehend that because, you know, I've worked with developers and architects. We've ne- I've never had the honor of working with you on a project, but I've I've worked on so many conversions, and it's you know every project, especially the conversions. These projects are labors of love. I think the quickest conversion I ever did was with Savannah at 141 Fifth Avenue, and that took them seven years. So how do you fit 150 buildings into a career okay. uh, like, like just logistically?
1: So the answer is this, is that it almost jumps back again to the early days when the codes and the zoning wasn't there. And one had to learn how to go about it, which was a new phenomena, how to process it, through the Department of Buildings and the Zoning Commission in order to get the approvals. And so I became or developed an expertise. I had to, the only way of doing it. And I rely to this day on some of the reconsiderations and processes that I did 40, 50 years ago because it, it carved the ground. And you're right. If somebody just jumped into it like a highly qualified very respected architect with a strong developer, and they bought a building to convert to residential use, and they hadn't done it before, neither one. They almost would be lost, quite frankly. They really need to have somebody on board who's gone through this maze, really, where the even though our laws are way better now, and we'll talk about that in a moment, still, every building is a challenge. And so at any given time, like right now, I'm converting four or five buildings in Manhattan. And that just keeps on going. And I remember thinking maybe as long ago as 35 years ago, wow, we're going to run out of buildings at some point. You know, but that's just not the case. Because every year, another five or 10 or more buildings come into the office and and we busily get to work converting them.
0: So are you um, hired predominantly as architect, or are you developer, or do you wear both
1: hats? I wear both hats. I'm a developer in about half of the projects that I do, and that gives me an expertise in terms of financing and marketability and does the thing really work and how to do layouts that sell best. So that strengthens my ability to do things for clients as well. So in uh, some of the buildings... I do as a joint venture with other people, and some as a sole investor. I, I was the primary person at Liberty Tower, the 33-story building in Lower Manhattan.
0: Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, Ryan, so. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, maybe 25 years ago, I sold one of my first apartments there. I got a listing. It was a very difficult building, one of the most magnificent buildings i think when it was built in its time it was the tallest skyscraper in new york
1: the tallest on the smallest plot so it was the skinniest tower
0: which is funny because relative to what we see going on in the world now with some of these uh, skinny buildings it was actually pretty significant it was it was yes, big exactly it was um, the first
1: was pencil buildings
0: yeah i mean i love that neighborhood there's so much history in that neighborhood you know it's down the street from trinity church it's kind of where manhattan really began And I always love to walk down those streets and look at these historic buildings where Rockefeller, Tesla, you know, all of these incredible people um, and, and the beginning of commerce, really. But that building must have been a challenge because I remember going through and like the restoration was beautiful. It's a really beautiful, historic tower and it feels like an apartment building. But what was what was that building originally? And then how do you tackle something like that? Where do you even begin?
1: Okay, so that was an office building initially, and I converted it like I was doing the Soho conversions, which was raw space. In 1978, when I acquired that building, one could not get financing to create a residential building in the financial district. I went across to the Chase Bank and they laughed me out of the bank when I asked for financing. So I had to do it as raw space conversion which is interesting to talk about because that might be applicable, again, in today's market. Raw space conversion allows you to convert a building with no financing. Typically, one thinks of, wow, you have to buy a building, and then you have to have a bank and a lot of capital to put the infrastructure in a building. No. No. You can do a raw space conversion, and that's allowed under the Attorney General. It's the old way we did it in the in Soho and Tribeca back in the day, and it could occur now. And I used that technique twice before, once after 9-11, when everybody said, Lower Manhattan will not come back, and once before, again, in the 80s, when, again, we went into a severe recession. And there was the sense we wouldn't come back again. Right. So twice twice I've seen that uh, disillusion in, in, in our commercial buildings. Yeah. Today, I think we, we actually have a situation where the commercial buildings are viable if we can breathe a new way of thinking about them, into them.
0: Well, I'd love to chat about that. I mean, I was involved in a couple of those conversions. 420 West Broadway, the original gallery building in Soho. We, I, I worked with... Uh, uh, Greg Manichurian on that conversion and we delivered raw white boxes but we, we basically had to deliver a TCO which meant a basic kitchen and a you know a sink essentially in a bathroom that was working in order to get the TCO to close on units and then buyers would have to hire their own architect and construction team to come in and build out the space you know, the way they would want it. Is that that's so, kind of the concept you're thinking about?
1: No, Sean, I'm taking it back one step further which is that Yes, the project that you worked on, because it was filed that way at the AG's office, required a white box and a TCO, but you can actually walk it back even further. In other words, you and I could go out tomorrow and buy a building, and within a week, after filing our deck at the AG's office, start taking deposits for raw space. And as soon as the offering plan was approved as raw, raw space, meaning no bathroom, no kitchen, no infrastructure, in other words, uh, there would be the requirement that as each person acquired some portion of the acquisition was placed in escrow for the common areas so that the risers could be installed. And therefore, the people could go right ahead and start constructing at the same time that the common area work was being done.
0: So if I'm a purchaser and I'm buying from you, how does that work? Don't you have to deliver me a, am am I buying into the corporation, the partnership, or am I actually buying the real estate and you're allotting me a certain amount of the real estate?
1: I'm allotting you a certain amount of your real estate and obligating myself through a fund that has a deposit in it to put in the common rises and, and improvements, so let's say elevators or stairwork work or whatever other common area work needs to be done in the building. And that would allow somebody to get started right away. I bring this up because in New York City below 59th Street, one is allowed to convert to residential use above or below commercial space. So that means that if one took a office building on 14th street or any place in lower Manhattan below 59th street and wanted to convert get started by converting just one unit real quick one could do that and there could be then an offering plan where you acquire that unit and with the obligation that the common area and the riser and electricals etc are brought to you or it could be a rental Interesting. In
0: words, I I, knew, I didn't know you could have commercial above residential. I thought you, you had to have commercial below residential. Correct. But you're, you telling, you, you're telling you are telling me you don't have to. to 59th
1: street. In okay, to be a little more specific, yeah. The building has to be built prior to nineteen sixty one. It has to be prior to nineteen seventy seven if it's below Murray Street. But that whole wealth of buildings, tens of thousands of buildings can be converted with residential above or below. So that means that just one unit, let's say I had a big commercial building on 20th Street and you wanted to rent a unit from me and make it residential or really joint. In today's market, you wanted to operate from your home. All right. And so I then rented you the 19th floor. And I quickly filed an application, which would be quite straightforward, and allowed you to both live and work on the 19th floor, even though there were 10 floors above you that were commercial and 18 floors below you that were commercial.
0: Interesting. So do you think we're going to see more of this trend now with what's been going on with like people wanting to work from home and or work close to their home? And how do you see this affecting the world moving forward in New York City?
1: So both ways. So I see it in terms of people who are are living in a space who now want to work in it. And again, taking what I said, south of 59th Street, you're allowed to use 49% of your floor area for a commercial use and have three employees. So that allows you that, that ability to create more than just a home office because it, it's, an, it's called extended home office. It's actually almost any commercial use except for a few carve-outs like a beauty parlor or a, or a barbershop or something. But general office use, design use, a whole wealth of the use group six uses could occur within your home and vice versa. Again, that, that situation of the building where I'm renting you the 19th floor, you could then live there and also work there with three employees.
0: Interesting. So um, I want to go back to some of the challenges you face with conversions, because I know that like in my experience you know, it's kind of like you go into this commercial building, it's an office building, or it was a textile manufacturing building, or it was whatever its prior use was, and then you buy the building, and it almost feels as like as if, you know, you're going to open up a wall and find where the bodies are buried, And and every building has its own surprises. And every time I've spoken to a developer who's converted a building, after that experience, they say, oh, my God, I would never do that again. I would just want to build ground up. It's so much simpler, it's quicker, it's less complicated. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Okay, so I'm just the opposite. Right. I think that an existing building is so bloody easy. Pardon my French. (laughs) In other words, particularly office buildings. Back in the day, the challenge was with the warehouse buildings and these heavy commercial type of buildings. They are tougher, no question about it, because they don't have the infrastructure. But the office building, what is the difference between an office building and a residential building? Hardly anything at all. It has automatic elevators. It has plumbing. It has electrical. If it's a fully operating office building in Manhattan, generally speaking, it's in fairly good condition. And so the idea of making it into a residential space on any particular floor is quite easy. Well, quite simple.
0: A lot of these industrial buildings were built full, right? Or some of them are a city block. And they didn't need light and air necessarily that we would need for residential living. You know, so a lot of these newer buildings that that are coming up seem to be more efficient. The loss factor is less. I think a challenge that I've seen with a lot of these pre-war, beautiful pre-war buildings is that they've got very deep floor plates. Wherein lies the challenge of laying these units out where they're kind of conducive to residential living.
1: Well, I think you actually spoke about it in one of your emails, where what you do is you use the central portion, the deeper part of the unit for the commercial use, and you use the periphery for the residential use that has the windows. Right. There are Again, south of 59th Street, you have the section of the code, Article 1, Chapter 5, the zoning regulations, that allows great flexibility in terms of light and air. So the only thing you're talking about is what's the marketability of the situation. Right. But with proper layouts, even very deep buildings can work because the core invariably is in the central portion in a uh, office building. It's not on the periphery. And so that's what fills the center portion of, of a building. And there's no question that the skinnier the tower, the better the conversion or the the more quality because it has the windows, that that means that perhaps the upper part of many buildings, as they get skinnier and the taller part of the older building is the part that you convert, and the lower part is more stays more commercial. But even the parts can work as well.
0: Right. I know that that's happening now. Uh, Ken Horn and Alchemy Properties are doing the Woolworth Building, which to me is one of the most beautiful buildings in the city. And it's got commercial down in the base and residential up top. What are your thoughts on that building?
1: Oh, it's one of the great buildings of the city. Yeah. A dream dream conversion.
0: Yeah. What's your favorite uh, building in the city?
1: Well, if I had a choice... Could do a conversion tomorrow morning. It would be the uh, the uh, Chrysler Building.
0: Well, you know, A. B. Rosen just bought that, and there's uh, only
1: one use for that building,
0: which is what <laughs> residential.
1: Here's the funny part about it: in the 1960s, when I did my master's thesis at Columbia University, it was for the conversion of the Chrysler Building to residential use. Amazing. I, I had the plans all ready to go.
0: And, and how does it lay out? That's my favorite building Absolutely. in the world. It's not, not it's only... perfect... Your... Well,
1: perfect. it seems very
0: efficient. If you have the core up the middle, you've got four beautiful corners of light and air. It just that I guess the neighborhood is not as residential as one might want it, but it's it's magnificent.
1: People would flock from all over the world. It's the billion dollar conversion. Right. So I've walked through the
0: building on Madison Square Park the tower there that now is a, an addition hotel and i remember walking through that building and it, and and you would think it would be the clock tower building i don't know if you're familiar sure. with it yeah, you know and i well, remember well, walking in there the views are spectacular but the challenge with that building is the ceiling heights are so high but the windows are way too high so if you're standing in one of the rooms your window starts at about 4 feet off the ground um which would not bode well for a residential conversion
1: well, there would be ways around it, right? With some platforms and Yeah, you stuff. could raise
0: the floor, but then you're lowering the ceiling, I guess.
1: Just maybe in that area. Or I think there would be ways to get around that. So, the
0: Chrysler building, I'm going to try and put a call into AB and have him uh, convert it to residential because I would love to sell those. I mean, that that agreed is magnificent.
1: People from all over the world and send you a check.
0: What are your thoughts? Another building that I think should be converted is the Flatiron building.
1: Absolutely. That's another building. And, you know, remarkably enough, all of these buildings at one time or another were in play in our office. So that's why we have floor plans for the conversion of the Chrysler Building, floor plans for the conversion of the Flatiron Building. And I'll give you one more. What about the Empire State Building?
0: (laughs) That's another good one. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And here's one other thing. Let's not forget that all three of those buildings and almost every other building are eligible for the historic investment tax credit, which means that 20% of all the hard, soft, and administrative costs are a direct deduction of taxes. I mean, that is gigantic. It's not an offset against expense. It means if you owe a million dollars worth of taxes at the end of the year, and you have a million dollar tax credit, you send the, the federal government zero.
0: Why aren't more people doing this?
1: I think it's a question of the fact that it's a specialty, Sean. All of these complex things in terms of Article One, Chapter 5, Section 7B of the Multiple Dwelling Law, which both of those are very special parts of the code for people who aren't familiar with them. And then on top of that, the Historic Investment Tax Credit. But those three pieces put together are an incredible real estate opportunity for all of lower Manhattan. By lower, I mean just south of 59th Street.
0: Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on all of this new construction, these skyscrapers going up on 57th Street?
1: Very exciting. No, I think that's all a whole other type of thing. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. As if one drives into Manhattan to see these pencils um, defining our skyline, is uh, extremely exciting so
0: but but do you see the future where there's opportunity for a lot more conversion a lot of these beautiful pre-war buildings to be converted from commercial to residential
1: well i'm hearing things that are that are very dreary and hearing things that Some of our office buildings are only 10% being used right now. People are operating from homes that law firms are rethinking the way they may want to operate rather than spending huge amounts of money for rental space. They may have their partners and everybody else operating from home. And that would change very much the way we do things. But I think there's a way of using the product, the built environment, with all of these wonderful office buildings both ways. In other words, make them both habitable and office space as well.
0: Right. Now, I mean, you've been doing this for your entire career for 50 years, and you've seen New York City go through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And what we're seeing now is unprecedented. Like, we, you know, our city, uh, the, the nation, the world has been crippled by this pandemic. And New York City, I think, has bared the brunt of it. And it's it's really brought us to our knees and the city doesn't seem the same. How do you see this moment in time in history relative to other past historic moments? And where do you see us going in the future?
1: I think it's identical in a way. I think it's identical to that, to. The- that period right after 9-11, when there were people seriously saying that New York City will never recover, and I think that it's similar to the late 1970s, early 80s, when again people were saying Lower Manhattan will be a wasteland, it'll never, it'll never come back. And I think we might be hearing that same kind of doomsday discussion again, but it's not true. Well,
0: we are think, hearing it. I mean, a lot of people are saying it and we're, we're seeing, I mean, I walked down the streets yesterday. I saw, you know, a mini city of homeless people. I haven't seen that in, you know, 15 years in the city.
1: So I think it's a question of adapting to it now, taking these buildings and applying both uses, both the commercial use and the residential use so that people can operate from home and have less of sitting in a big office with lots of other people. And we don't know. I mean, maybe this virus is going to come swinging back in or another virus. And we're not going to want to be in large offices with tens of people that are surrounding us and all of those types of issues that we can operate like you and I right now, that we're talking right now. And we could actually do this as a Zoom or a Skype and see each other and show each other different things. And we could conduct a full, complete meeting. Yes. Perhaps more conveniently than if we were sitting in an office.
0: Oh, my commute uh, from my bedroom to my office is a lot better than it used to be uh, six months ago, that's for sure.
1: And you don't even have to get out of your robe. Right?
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what are you working on right now? And are you, are you adapting kind of what's going on around us into your design and... You know, in my blog, I wrote that you responded to, I wrote that, you know, it seems, you know, a lot of these buildings where we had this excess space and we were like, what would we do with it? And we created these home offices as kind of like throwaway spaces. Those are now some of the most valuable spaces that people love in the home. Um, you know, they don't have, they, they've got privacy, they've got separation. What are your thoughts and what you're working on right now? How are you adapting to this?
1: Well, I'm not yet in terms of adapting. In other words, nobody has come into the office and said, what can I do? I've certainly hear, heard sad stories from many of my clients that own commercial buildings that have substantial vacancies and they don't see things recovering in any type of quick way. So I'm initiating discussions in terms of converting their buildings to residential buildings with extended home occupation, which would allow the use of both residential and commercial at the same time. So none of those have started yet, but they certainly are very much in the discussion stages. The other projects I'm working on are the finishing up of other projects that were being converted, four buildings in Soho, two in Tribeca, and and one in uh, upper Manhattan.
0: And you've worked on small projects, townhouses. You've worked in different cities around the world you know, when you start a project, you kind of have to have a vision, right? I mean, I think what you do is more art. It's kind of like a combination of art, artistry, supported by your wealth of information and experience, right? That That's kind of brought you to, to who you are today. But there's still that element of art, which makes it special. and And I think that's why you don't see everyone able to do this. You know, what you do is beyond a skill. It's Maybe it's a gift, not a gift. I don't like to use the word gift because I'm sure you've worked incredibly hard. But, you know, when you start a project, you kind of have like a blank piece of paper. Well, in this case, you have a building and then you have a vision for what it's ultimately going to become. Do you approach a townhouse in Europe or a farmhouse or a chateau or with the same mindset as, say, a building in lower Manhattan? Do the same
1: principles apply? And the main principle is to keep as much of the existing fabric as possible. Not just for an historic reason, but for a historic reason for sure.
0: But when you talk about fabric, are you talking about beams, brick, floors, elements, everything? everything?
1: Yeah, I mean whole infrastructure. Keep everything as much as you can for two reasons. One, because of the historic nature, but secondly, to save money. Why spend the money to take something out And put something back in. Why take the cost of reshaping a building? Because one has a bright idea. Keep the building as much as it is originally as it was, which helps with things like historic investment tax
0: credit. Doesn't it cost more to restore sometimes (coughs) than to create something new?
1: See, I don't buy into that. I really don't. That's good to know. Yeah. I don't accept that because... If it's there, it's a question really of polishing it and reusing it in the proper way. Because to take it out is gonna cost money and then to put something new is additional money. So it's like paying twice. So why not just keep what you have without having all that additional expense, but also without damaging it. You know, I'm an architect, so I can say this. An architect is a very dangerous person. Because an architect loves to put his fingerprint on something, right? This is what I've done, XYZ or John Smith architect. And that's dangerous, really, because we need to respect the architect who built the original building, because he gave it a lot of thought. And if we give him the complete respect, the kind of respect we would want as an architect ourselves, we would do as little as we could possibly do to that building.
0: So are you saying, uh, what, what are your thoughts then on these new generation? I think it's mostly new generation of architects who have seem to have huge egos and, and want the building to be an expression, an extension of their statement and, and, and signature.
1: Well, that's fine. If they're building a new building, that's exactly what they should do. It's their statement. It's their building. All of that. But let's take the Chrysler building. If, if an architect went in there and, and wanted to take away the Art Deco character, not of the outside, because he wouldn't dare do that, I hope, <laughs> but of the inside, right? Or even, why not take that Art Deco character right through the whole building? Imagine if you were selling a full floor Art Deco building in the Chrysler building right now on the 40th floor. What would you ask? The sky's the limit, essentially.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, irreplaceable. Right. And, and priceless.
1: And it would be a shame if, if an architect went in there and wanted to put his fingerprint on that 40th floor and brought in John Smith, architect, to that. Why not work with the character of the building?
0: Agreed. What are your thoughts on Ralph Walker's buildings?
1: Fabulous. They're all extraordinary buildings. Right? For
0: conversion, incredible, right? Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Who are your, some of your favorite architects to like go in? It, it almost feels I, I would imagine like you're you're speaking speaking to them, even if they're deceased, you kind of feel their spirit through the architecture of the building. And now you're taking the baton into its next iteration of the building.
1: So that's the first thing one does when one tackles an, an old building, is you dig in and find out every single thing you can about it. If you can lay your hands on the original drawings, if you can do all the research. Research is the whole key to it, because when you look at something, you may not fully understand it. You know, why is the door there? Why was this laid out this way? What was the architect thinking? The architect wasn't a fool 20 or 30 years ago. And very often, if you don't understand it, you're tempted to think that the architect made a mistake. 99 times out of 100, that's just not the case. The guy is probably twice as smart as we are. Mm -hmm. And he had all of the information of why he did that. And if you can lay your hands on that information, it makes you that much wiser and knowledgeable about what you're going to do with that building.
0: So what is, what is a project that you've worked on where you've had like a big surprise where you were like, oh my God, that's something I never thought of and that's what he was thinking? And
1: Sure. So very early on, actually, I was just wildly excited to learn that the architects had put in a fill cinder above the slab to allow people to run plumbing above the slab so that one could have a bathroom or a sink or whatever in a different location. It was almost if this commercial building that was going to be a commercial building that 50 years ago the architect had figured out that I was going to come along and want to put a bathroom 30 feet away in this building. And it allowed for me to do that. The older buildings typically have these cinder concrete floors and then an additional slab that allow you to run plumbing horizontally, which is remarkable. And the other thing about it is is that many of the old buildings, the old office buildings, have shaft ways for sinks. It was quite typical to have a sink in every office so that you would wash your hands or whatever, and those shafts are, are sealed up and long forgotten. But if you dig up the old plans and can locate them, the idea of putting those revitalizing those shafts with new plumbing and electrical is a dream.
0: Right. Sounds yeah, incredible. Well, um, I've taken a lot of your time. I, I we have to work on a project together. That's a goal of mine. It would
1: be wonderful.
0: I, I, I really I would love to work on one of these beautiful pre war office buildings and convert it into a residential use. It would be an honor working with you. And right. um Thank you. And uh, yeah, let's make that our goal for, for the right. next couple of years. Any parting words like if, you know, there, there are some people who will be listening to this who maybe are in college or coming out and they want to get into real estate and they look at these beautiful pre-war buildings. And do you have any like parting words if, if you had to tell your a 21-year-old version of yourself today coming into this world um, of architecture and development uh, piece of advice?
1: I would say, don't look before you leap, <laughs> Just jump right in and do it and keep it as much as possible the way it originally was so for all of the reasons that I mentioned, I think- for historic and investment tax credit and to be wise economically.
0: Great advice, really great advice. I wish I'd met you uh, 30 years ago and listened to that and taken your advice. <laughs>
1: Not too
0: late. I think we could still have some fun. That's true, 100%. Joe, thank you so much. It's really, it's an honor, and and uh, it's been great chatting with you. I look forward to seeing what you, you you do moving forward. I really hope we can work on something together. And, um, yeah, looking forward to seeing some of your next work. Very exciting. And maybe, you, maybe we can convince AB to… Uh, do the chrysler building that would be absolutely and uh, that would be unbelievable he
1: also has the lever building he has a couple of good ones
0: he's he's got really good taste when it comes to buying buildings
1: and also the seagrams building we have floor plans to convert the seagrams building ah uh, uh,
0: that 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 would also be unbelievable yep all right so uh, i'll put in a call we'll see what we can do
1: <laughs> all right thank you sean <laughs> all right have a great day thanks,
0: thanks joe all right take care You're okay Bye bye. bye bye